Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. This is Lisa DeLay, and today my guest is Tracy Rhodes with her book, Not All Who Wander Spiritually Are Lost, A Story of Church. And this is with Church Publishing Incorporated. Thank you so much, Tracy, for being my guest today. Uh, Thank you for having me, Lisa. I really enjoyed your book, and it is a very different one than I typically read or maybe than most people have typically read because it includes a lot of your own personal story, but also the book includes stories of others and people from a variety of Christian backgrounds and traditions. And it's a unique feature of the book, I think. A lot of people who've experienced institutional church have had a mix of ups and downs or good and bad experiences, which you validate in the book. But for you, especially as a young girl, church was a place of refuge. And maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about the church that kept its doors unlocked and what you found there. Sure. Up the road for me, it, I don't know, it was maybe half a mile, a short bike ride, was a church called Mount Olive. It was a United Methodist Church. And you know, it's just one of those things that as you're growing up, you don't realize that the impact that it's going to have on you. But this church, um, I often refer to it in my writing as the church who never locked her doors, was several things to me. It was a, a fun place where I went and played. Um, I would drag some stuffed animals or dolls with me and set them up in the pews and do sermons and um, <laughs> pluck around on the piano. But then as I got older, it also became a very beloved place. My family, uh, extended family, experienced um, a few untimely deaths uh, when I was in junior high and high school. And that was where I went. It called to me. Um, I just knew that that altar could be a place where I could pray, where I could weep before God and do that privately um, in, in a sanctuary. So it, it really grew in its. Um, in its preciousness to me. And then every time in college and as an adult, whenever I would go back home, when my parent, we don't um, actually own the property around there anymore, but when we did, I would always try to sneak off and go visit again. You know, the smell was just familiar. It had all of the traditional pictures on the wall, you know, Jesus knocking at at the door of our heart. We've all Mm -hmm. seen kind of that traditional painting and so it be it was a familiar place. Um, it was a part of home for me. Maybe two years ago on Facebook, um, I found out that an individual that I had went to high school with, she and her husband had bought the church. It had closed, and so was the building mm-hmm. itself was available for mm-hmm. sale. And it was so neat. Just you know, one of those benefits of Facebook. She did private message me and say, if you ever want to stop in and visit when you're back in Missouri, you're more than welcome to do so. So pretty cool. And this church you're talking about, the one with the doors always unlocked, wasn't the church that you attended regularly. It was something that was just close by that you felt actually drawn to the building and the sacred space itself, right? Or were the people ever involved with you there? I knew some of the people just because it was such a small area. One of my dear friends from uh, school, actually, he and his family attended there. And then our neighbors maintained um, the building and would mow the yard and stuff. And so some familiarity. But the 
neighbors on the other side of us, um, we lived in the country, so neighbors were few and far between. Um, the neighbor on the other side of us actually invited her to her to her church, which was a Southern Baptist church. It was probably, I'd say, four or five miles from our home, so still relatively mm-hmm. close, but not walking distance. And that's actually where we attended and where um, I, I call my childhood church. That's really interesting. You know, I don't know any churches around that keep their doors unlocked, but that is was really interesting to me to read that you, it was like your your safe place where you, you played with your stuffed animals and your dolls and you, you made it your own uh, special place. And that was really endearing to read that. I often think about, you know, there's reasons why people keep their churches locked, obviously, for vandalism or whatever. Um, so people don't cause mischief and, and things. But I often wonder if churches were unlocked for people to come and pray or make themselves at home in ways like you did, what kind of ripple effect that would have. It was really interesting that that was your experience. You speak too about going to the church that you did and also experiencing several church splits. And this is just so common, especially in Protestantism and even more so in independent churches where there could be personality clashes or things like that, disagreements where there's no greater structure to guide people towards ways of reconciliation and greater spiritual maturity to move through and past conflicts. And instead, there's like different tribes form and there's bad feelings, hurt feelings, and people move in different directions. How did church splitting tend to unfold in your experience? It would always happen slowly. Um mm-hmm. Church rumor mill is a very real thing. And so you would start to hear, let's say, of meetings um, that would happen after Sunday services. You would walk out into the parking lot and you would see little pods of people, um, often arms crossed. Uh, A feeling, let's say it started with a feeling, you know, kind of a gut Mm -hmm. feeling that something wasn't going right. Um, Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, family members of the individual who's um, being looked at will mm. distance themselves. Um, you, you know, they they yeah. are privy to stories and information that the congregation as a whole is not. And so mm. they will also begin acting different. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the case of our church, uh, Southern Baptists, I have since learned, are pretty independent in their governance. And we would have regular business meetings. And business meetings is always where the big topic of what, what to do about the situation came up. And as I referenced in the book, it was always so interesting to me. And I, I, I realized most of this through my mom because I was pretty young to really know all the details. But in those business meetings, we would have so many individuals attend who were not regulars at church, but they did hold membership there. And so it seemed as if the powers that be could round up the amount of votes that they needed um, every time. And it was, uh, it's such a sad part of that story because um, those that know my presence on social media and those of, that have read or are familiar with the book know that 
I overall had a very good experience with church. I, I, I love the church so much. And that particular church taught me Bible story after Bible story. And I memorized so much scripture. There was so much godly action going on in that church and so much fruit being produced. Uh, it was just a sad sidebar that we had to experience um, one too many times, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, people do human things after all, and we're, we're all in, imperfect. I know I've heard um, it said many times, if you um, want to go to a perfect church, as soon as you step into that church, it becomes an imperfect church because yeah. everybody is so imperfect. And uh, it's it's even more so today that, we go in idealistically in a way with very consumer mindsets, hoping that a church will be what we want it to be in a kind of shopping list sort of way, not realizing that everybody has foibles, makes mistakes, sins, and that has troubles and disagreements. And I think it was Eugene Peterson who said, that he would recommend when people said, you know, how do you recommend picking a church? And he said, you pick the closest one to you geographically that you can focus on the majors, not the minors doctrinally. If you can handle that, if you can handle what the, the doctrine is, try to try to handle it, mm-hmm. <laughs> try to be okay with it, and then stay even when there's arguments, even when there's problems, stay through those and learn from them. And, and he was all about commitment, not just going for what you need, but then when people start to get problematic, stay anyway. And that, that can be extremely hard. I hit on that pretty hard in the book myself. Um, mm-hmm. Because of my past experiences, I have a s- super hard time leaving a church. I, I stay very committed. Um, mm-hmm. Since then, I now attend a Reformed church, and we hear a ton about covenant theology, and that mm-hmm. has added a whole nother layer of commitment mm-hmm. <laughs> to my vocabulary. Um, yeah. And I asked that question in the book, when should we go? When is it viable mm-hmm. to say, I have stayed as long as God would have me to stay? And I honestly believe, whether it offends or not, we leave too soon sometimes. I think we miss out on a lot of hard but healthy conversations that could happen if we chose to stay. Right. Yeah. In the places where it's toxic or abusive, it's not good to stay. But in the places where it's, yeah, (laughs) in the places where it's differences of opinion, or people are squabbling over uh, doctrinal points. That's not reasons to leave. If it's so offensive to your doctrine, you know that's that's different than having a you know if someone's saying something about the de- deity of Jesus or something that's about believing in Christianity itself. That's different. But if, if someone's saying, well, you know, I think that we're you know, about the rapture or some particularities about something like that. Or I wish we sang more hymns. <laughs> right. Something about worship music. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. You can set that aside. But- no, you're right. Core doctrine. And again, something that I really focus on there, there has got to be a 
core doctrine that you are seeking in the churches that you visit, in the churches that you become involved with, that a very healthy approach. But certainly, you know, I hope that readers can think um, of instances that they have heard about or experienced where they're like, eh, I don't know, you know, maybe a person had stayed and had some of those hard conversations. There could have been some good that came from that often we'll hear, I wasn't being fed. That's a really typical Mm. one. I wasn't being fed. Now that can be true. Like that, that happened to me and I went to seminary. (laughs) That means you might need to buy some really good books and have some really intelligent conversations with friends that you meet who are interested in the same interesting things that you are. That is actually not a reason to leave the church because it's very consumer mindset. And of course, you might not be fed because the the pastor or preacher might be trying to meet the the intellectual and uh, the abilities um, biblically of of the the least person up to the the most studied person. They'll have to come somewhere in the middle, Amen. and yep. it might you know it might not pertain to you, and you might be able to be used there maybe as a teacher or a guide. And you can't just rely on, you know, feed me, feed me, Seymour. Yeah. You, know, you, you have to, <laughs> you know, you'll have to do some extra work on your own to get the sustenance you need. And that's fine. You you might have, you might be called into a teaching role because of that or a mentoring role or something. And it's not up to the pastor to feed you. You know, that's kind of like, hey, I need steak, but I need steak put in the puree and then fed to me, (laughs) you know, it's kind of, it doesn't make any sense. I think what was really interesting, and you talk about the creeds and some of these common denominators that, that make us all one. And you also include a variety of voices in your book from different traditions that are represented. Some of these voices had a real struggle with their faith communities. And some of them moved from place to place and discover different types of denominations. What are some of the voices represented? Give us a little bit of a taste of some of the different people that you included. Sure. Um, I'll back up a little bit in that story or in that mm-hmm. part and say, when I first got the idea for the book, I realized how many experiences I had had. It definitely started out as kind of a personal narrative. I have moved a lot. I have been a part of three or four different denominations. Um, My best friend in high school was Catholic. And so a ton of my own experiences kind of sparked, for lack of a better word, um, the idea for the book. But then as I got to writing it and in talking with my agent, we decided early, pretty early in the process, this is going to be a stronger book and this is going to be make the book's case stronger if I add some stories to it. And social media was so helpful with that. In that book, uh, I have actually a friend from back home who is a cradle Catholic. She's not a writer, but I knew her story and I knew it to be a, a solid one for this book. And so I invited her to submit an essay. couple writers who I really admire, I have enjoyed their reading myself and knew a bit of their story. And so I invited them to include an essay. Um, I would say probably about half are that instance. I kind of knew what they would write about, but it amazed me whenever I would get those essays back from them 
how well they fit into the narrative. I mean, each one kind of has their solid spot. I'm sure the Holy Spirit had something to do with that. One individual is the very last one I added. Uh, Donnie is his name. I didn't have what I felt like was a solid individual who had experience with the African-American church. And I really wanted that piece. And so I actually asked in a writing group if there was someone that they knew of. And Donnie is a um, church member of a fellow writer. And she said, I think he would be perfect. And when I got in touch with him, he was more than happy to share his story. So it was neat the way some of the stories came to be. Um, but definitely, like I said, I felt like very spirit led whenever I would get them, I would like, Oh, this makes perfect sense here. So it, it was a neat feature to add to the book. What are a couple of the different faith traditions and de- denominations that made it in for people who haven't read it? Like I have. Yes. Um, there is a Lutheran and there's a gentleman who, he went to an Episcopalian school, but grew up Catholic left Catholicism and ended up attending a, an, ev- an evangelical church and then fell in love with contemplative practice. And lo and mm. behold, was introduced yet again to um, Catholicism. Uh, mm. st- so his, his story is really interesting. Um, I have a couple of other Baptists like me, uh, like I grew up. There's a Seventh-day Adventist which total, I, I learned so much just from reading her essay because that was um, a denomination I was not familiar with. There's a couple Orthodox. So yeah, mm-hmm. definitely a big variety, um, a Pentecostal individual as well. And you also went out, I remember seeing your, your social media posts about this too, as you were experiencing all sorts of different kinds of services yourself from different denominations and places you were unfamiliar with, checking them out and seeing what other Christians were experiencing, uh, listening to what you were up to with with your different visits. You purposefully sought out these experiences. And I'm wondering what were a few of your surprises or what were a few takeaways that you added to your own spiritual practices or your ways of being a Christian? It's a great question. It's become a passion of mine to visit different places. Uh, I often go alone Um, sometimes because it's just kind of the way it works out logistically. But also it can be a little daunting to think of bringing someone with you when you don't even know for yourself what you're going to experience. Probably three or four times there is a, I'm not going to say it right, Antiochian, I think is how they say it, Orthodox Church that is um, about 35 minutes from my house. And I reached out to the priest. I often send an email before I just show up. And I sent an email out to the priest and asked him if I could attend their midweek service. There was a period of time in my life where I felt very strongly that I needed to go and pray in a church during the week. Um, Mm. And, you know, as we've talked about, most churches have their doors locked. I don't know that they would be opposed. Like even my own church, once we didn't have a building for probably eight or nine years uh, that I attended there. But once we got our building, I remember asking the pastor, you know, would it be okay if I came here during the week? And he was, of course, Mm -hmm. okay with that. But I really felt that desire 
to go and pray in a church building. I, I know mm-hmm. not everyone has that exact same tie to a sanctuary mm-hmm. and people love to say, you know, that the church is people, not a building. Right. That building's just sacred to me. I don't know if I'm extra unique in that, but that's what I felt like I needed in that period of my life. And so mm-hmm. the Orthodox priest wrote me back and he said I was always welcome. Actually, I live near Calvin College at Calvin University now. And he said mm-hmm. that actually several professors from Calvin mm-hmm. will express interest in coming and learning about the Orthodox faith too. So I would not mm-hmm. be the only person that had done that. <laughs> Part of the the beauty of what I have enjoyed doing is that I go in so ready to learn. So I guess it's it's showing that. Yeah. I believe it's called sixth hour prayer, if I remember correctly. And I would go and there were maybe 10 of us, um, a, a wide variety of different ethnicities. And I was always welcomed. There was one gentleman in particular that I think had kind of assigned himself as a greeter. And so he was always quick to asked me how I was doing. And like I say, I went four or five times, but that very first time I went, we started praying and I knew the Jesus prayer just from books that I had read. And I did have a prayer rope at that point. And so knew that we would be praying the Jesus prayer, but they prayed it 41 times. (laughs) If I remember correctly, they just said, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we all said it together. And, you know, it's so funny what goes through my head because they, they've grown, so many of them have grown up with this. And so it's not as new as it is to me, but in my mind, I'm thinking, how do we know when we hit 40? Are we counting by fours? Are we doing it eight times in sequence? You know, And so I probably am not getting the prayerful focus yet that um, that, that is supposed to be a part of that. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I and then I think to myself, never in my life have I ever prayed anything 41 times in a row. Mm. What is that about? You know, and so then it starts this whole, Mm. whole journey. And I think a key part of it for me is that I stopped looking at something and instantly saying it's wrong. I've been told Mm -hmm. it's wrong. I was taught it's wrong. I know in my heart Mm. it's wrong, whatever. And I have more of a posture of how interesting I want to learn about that. I don't know that that's something that I'll add to my faith life, but I I believe that as Christian brothers and sisters, we have so, so much to teach one another. And mm. if I enter into those conversations or into those services that I visit with an attitude of how interesting, what might I have to learn from this? Mm-hmm. That's made all the difference for me. I'm curious to ask you about the 41 times. Were, were you so preoccupied with the number that you you couldn't get to a kind of contemplative or relaxed state? Or um, did you ever think of the prayer itself? Or were you just kind of like, what's up? What's going on? You weren't acclimated yet. Well, probably that first time. It was, <laughs> I was yeah. not I was not acclimated. Um, I have since I have a prayer book that a Coptic Orthodox friend gave me called the Akia. And I do use that and it includes um, the Jesus prayer. And at times you can say it that often. And I love when I read about it being the breath prayer or a breath prayer, 
that the times that I have connected with it well and gotten out of my um, thinking mind, mm-hmm. um, yeah. that it, it definitely feels like breathing, like an inhale and an yes, exhale yes. that's um, so, so right. healthy. Yeah, I actually talk about that in my book. Let's explain it a little bit for people who don't understand. So, so one of the aspects of of the Jesus prayer is that the phrasing can match your breath. So, once you get over the idea, especially like my my parents were both Southern Baptists, and so I was a cradle Christian in a you know pastor's kid the whole bit, and so they would have said, "Oh, you're saying a prayer over and over that's already written. That's vain repetition, and that's not a real prayer." I think what they really didn't understand is this is a cultural difference, is that, of course, it's an already written prayer, so you don't have to worry about what you're going to say and have your mind focused on, mm, what might God want to hear? or Am I doing this right? Instead, you know exactly what you're going to say, but you actually line up your breath with the phrases so that your prayer almost becomes your inhale, exhale, and it it's part of that unceasing prayer that Paul talks about. So you're lining up everything with your prayer, your, your life in a way is getting to be a prayer. And so you would, how would you explain it in the inhale, exhale part? How would you explain that? No, I I think you're completely right. Um, and, And what I have found is I, I have not gotten to the point where I use these formal prayers throughout the day. That is a goal of mine, but I do use Mm -hmm. them early in the morning. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is it's the best way for me. You know how we hear every tradition hears it. Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. That's how I get still. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, the best yeah. way to say it. Another example, a breath prayer doesn't have to be the Jesus prayer. You know, another example right. for me, um, hearing those words, our Father who art in heaven, that gives me an mm-hmm. inhale and an exhale as well. Um, is it the Gloria glory be to the father and the son? Um, you know, Mm -hmm. any of these things, uh, I I think familiarity is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, what we have been taught is vain repetition is actually likening it to beyond our mind, beyond our heart. These are the, um, spiritual rhythms, if you will. Mm -hmm. An example Mm -hmm. I love to use is and I talk about it a lot in the book. I grew up singing out of the Baptist hymnal, mm-hmm. and I love that hymnal, and I love those songs. And I'm mm-hmm. amazed as I write, mm-hmm. those songs will enter into my writing. Mm-hmm. I plug in the vacuum, and lo and behold, I'm like, oh, fly away. Oh, it's like, where was that? <laughs> By golly, those hymns are breath prayers to me. They are deep, deep in my heart and they bubble up. And I think an Orthodox person who has said the Jesus prayer for 40 some years would say the same thing. And I think a Catholic who has said Hail Mary for 40 some years would say the same thing. And interestingly, I remember, I don't, I ask a lot of questions on Twitter. I start a ton of theological conversations and we somehow mm-hmm. manage to keep it kind. And I love that. Yeah, you're um, like a miracle worker on Twitter, basically. I'm a Twitter whisperer. <laughs> I'm going to trademark that. I hadn't thought of that. Anyway, um, 
I asked something about the creeds, if I remember correctly, or it could have even, it could have been something from um, a prayer book. I don't recall. But what the gentleman said to me, he is a chaplain, and he said he can't believe how many times people with dementia or Alzheimer's or they will be, you know, nearing um, their point of death. And these are the words that come to them that you, you will lean down and hear their whisper, you know, as it grows fainter and faint, more and more faint. And it will be, um, I believe in God, the father, that's so beautiful to me. And if it's a hymn or if it's a Jesus prayer or if it's a Apostles Creed, how cool that you have Jesus and God on your lips. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, just the words vain repetition. It's only vain if you aren't paying attention, right? So it's it's if it doesn't matter to you or if you're doing it for some kind of, you know, vain reason, but it doesn't have to be if you're, if it's devotional to you, if it's helping you to become more like Jesus. And so I just like verse memorization, um, which Southern Baptists are big into. And I think verse, you know, memorization is great. It, you know, keeps it right in your mind. And all those verses can be the inhales and exhales uh, of our day and, and of our prayers. And I actually do the Jesus prayer automatically, not thinking that I'm not calling it that, but that's exactly, it's the words of the Jesus prayer. And I'll do it at night and in the morning as I, um, as I get up and my, my thoughts start racing and I, I start going, um, okay, um, this might mess up and this might mess up and I have to do this and this. And I'm like, Oh, that's right. I'm, I'm doing it again. I, I don't have to, this is not up to me. And then I'll just say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I used to not be able to say a sinner because I felt like garbage. And I and I felt like, oh, I, I can't even keep praying. Like I, I had such a shame-filled, guilt-ridden, like, don't even bother praying. God isn't going to listen to you. Like, it was just, I had to actually really heal from a lot of stuff. And one of the things I came up with was for a long time, before I could pray that I had to pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, your child, because I felt so disconnected. I felt so uh, the sinner part wasn't. You already knew that. Like, it's a, well, I was like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, I felt like, you know, kick me to the curb. Oh. That's what I need. But, you know, coming to the point of feel they actually are both the same thing. I can be a sinner and a child. Yeah. I, I am both. It's I'm, I'm Lisa. I'm a sinner and I'm a child. And all those things can be true. And when I figured that out, then I could pray it the regular way. But uh, it did take a little healing first because I felt really damaged. And then once, once that could happen, it, it sets me right again. You know, it's like I'm, I'm put back in the embrace of God by, um, because there's there's some forgetting of yourself you have to do to not get you know massively screwed up in your day you know you have to get out of your own way yes. you know? and I think that's what the Jesus prayer c- can do if you're if you're paying attention you can get out of your own stupid way because mm-hmm. you'll you'll wind up messing it up either by um, 
you know, berating yourself or getting some sort of ego problem. And I'm just obviously speaking for myself. There's a lot of much better adjusted people out there yeah. than me. <laughs> but if, oh, yeah. yeah. But if there's, if people are struggling with that, that's one of the reasons why the contemplative prayers the prayers of the heart can be so transformative. I mean, that's kind of why I was writing my book is because I'm like, now if people need to heal, uh, memorizing verses won't help you, but ingesting them will help you. You know, it's yeah. like, there's, there's this difference. There's this so application. It's a slight switch, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it, you're, you're partially there, but then you actually have to kind of let them wash over you and, and change you. And mm -hmm. that's what some of the denominations uh, some of the Christian groups get that a little differently than others. And, and some, uh, you know, it's just, that's what's so nice about the, the fullness of the Christian experience. If you, if you don't hate on the other groups, yes. you can say, what, you know, what might I learn here? I don't have to believe every and do every single thing they do, but if, um, if they love Jesus, let's let's just see what else is available because maybe I was missing something I, I might really be helped by. Yeah. And I, I have been um, pleasant, so pleasantly surprised at how, uh, let's take for just one example, my interaction with scripture. I am a Bible girl through and through. I went from the Southern Baptist who taught me memorization and learn the books of the Bible, et cetera. You know, I didn't do sword drills, but we've heard of those to a reformed tradition who takes the scholarly study of scripture, very, very serious. And I became a Bible study teacher. It's been about 12 years now that I have taught um, groups of women at my church and locally. And I knew how to I, I knew how to interact with scripture that way. I knew how to look up the Greek words and I knew how to consider context. And I have still a pretty good number of verses that I, I can memorize way better at nine than I can now. I can tell you that. <laughs> Those verses are still there in my mind. And what I learned from, for example, looking at the Benedictine practice of praying the Psalms is that there's there's a whole nother a whole bunch of ways to interact with scripture. Uh, you know, you look mm. at the practice of Lectio Divina, uh, which is where you read, like the first time I experienced Lectio Divina, I had a person walk us through Psalm 23 and they read it the first time. And I, I have written a blog post about this a couple years back. The first time that he read it, I was like, oh my gosh, I know this. I already know this verse. Like I was trying to race him to the end. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I know this one. There's some pride there probably. But then we did it a second time and we did it. A th I, I, th I want to say he probably read it five times in its entirety. And he would walk you through, okay, now what sentence is like jumping off the page at you? What is something that you, maybe God's directing you to something in your life right now and this particular verse really speaks to that. Um, and since then, I, whenever I don't have time to do my daily reading in the morning like I like to do, I will use the Pray As You Go app. It's P-A-Y-G. Yes. And they do a, a lesser form of Lectio Divina, but it's the same kind of thing. 
walk, walk into the scripture. Don't just Mm -hmm. tear it apart (laughs) for, you know, how many different types of Greek words can you look up in, you know, 15 minute time period. And certainly like, I remember when my daughter learned John 316, she would rattle that off so fast. I'm like, there's no way any of that penetrated your heart. You just rattled that (laughs) thing as fast as you possibly could. But instead, sit with that scripture for a second. Read it two or three times. I don't care how familiar it is. Um, It's a different kind of interaction. You experience it totally differently. And then in six months, when you're at a completely different point in your life, if you do that again, you're going to have a completely different experience. That's been a really neat thing for me to learn. Yeah, it's it's a much more savoring and slowing down, and it slows everything down. I think um, allowing the scripture to to speak for itself, and then praying with the scripture, and asking God to to help you see things that you won't see if you're if you're going your normal. <laughs> pretty fast pace is, is a very, uh, God will invite us to deeper things, but not, uh, but on God's time, like on God's timeline. And I think God will wait until we're ready to, to hear and listen, but won't, uh, like won't run to catch up with us. You're like, I'm, I'm here. And when you slow down, and I think that's sometimes why, um, you know, when we're when we're stressed and we're fast paced, we'll wind up sometimes getting sick. Um, and I'm not saying that, that this whole pandemic is is a good thing that we would all slow down. But it, there are some gifts that that come with everybody taking stock of everything and everybody slowing down a little bit and saying, you know, what happens during slow time is so different than what happens in normal time. And scripture comes alive in different ways during that time. And A thing that set my book apart from a lot of the ones like mine that I have read is that I didn't um, leave a tradition in order to go be fulfilled in a different tradition. So many of the memoir, spiritual memoirs that I read is a person leave, like, for example, a person who left Judaism and is now an Anglican and what that experience has been like. Um, the reason, the way I found my publisher is I read a book that was about a gentleman who had grown up evangelical and became Episcopalian. Um, so a lot of these transitions and what I experienced as I was doing my own searching, wandering, is that I didn't have that desire and I didn't feel like God was moving me from my current tradition from the from my current church from the place where I was and so then I began to ask myself can I stay which I think as I've expressed is really important can I stay and still experience these things and obviously not quite in the same way I can't become an Anglican by visiting an Anglican church three or four times but I can be a reformed Christian who reads the Book of Common Prayer at my home, um, and I can go into my Bible study and lead my women through. You're calling. You're saying it differently. Um, like, so bear with me. But I, I can lead my Bible study women through that. And to be honest, at least at this point, oftentimes I won't tell them that's what it's called. 
because in my low church evangelical, it's hard to identify exactly what I am. If, if they get a hint of something being Catholic, they're nervous um, and, and often will outright reject it. Um, I'm also a huge fan of holy water. That's the opening story of my book, probably one of my more popular blog posts. It started as a blog post. Um, I, I asked my pastor once, I said, when, cause I told you we were building a new church um, during my time of being at our church. And I asked him if I could put a basin of water outside of one of the entrances to the sanctuary. And he laughed. He thought that was so funny. And I thought, I'm kind of not kidding. <laughs> like, <laughs> it would really benefit me to dip my hands in that holy water and then enter the sanctuary. Um, it's, it's just not, uh, not really heard of. Um, right. But I, I have found ways to sneak it in. Um, in my <laughs> reform tradition, I have found that if you go back far enough in history or if you go to a different Reformed church, there's a lot of similarities to more of a high church liturgical experience. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so much to learn. Um, and, and honestly, at least at this point in my faith walk, I was so excited to realize I didn't have to leave. Uh, I, yeah. So much I like about where I am and uh, the church that I am in my local church has been so good for my family. So I was kind of excited, you know, that at least at this point, that's not what God's asking me to do. He's just saying, open up your eyes, open up your ears. There's so much to experience and you get to. We're still talking about Christians, but, but fear of the other is, is really inappropriate. It's not of God. It's, it's of our own fears of either messing up or I don't know, but it usually isn't um, generative. I, when you open the book and you you start off with a story of going to a Catholic church Ash Wednesday service, and the priest says, "Ask if you're Catholic," and you say no, but then he he's kind and he assures you that's okay. We can still be friends, right? And he has open arms, and you're not a confirmed Catholic, so that, that does mean certain things. But the original church that you were a part of might not have been so accepting of those things. If it were totally reversed, they might have assumed that if you had come to a church service as a Catholic, you might be bound for hell in their eyes. And so it's just interesting how we have the insiders and the outsiders all made up, all decided in our minds sometimes. Yeah. And not seeing each other as as brothers and sisters in Christ, making up our minds about each other and how, well, they do this, so this is wrong. And, you know, I was told a lot of things about Catholics and, and still my, my mom will say, you know, Catholics pray to Mary and they don't know what they're doing. Mm. And I'll say, you know, I had a spiritual director who's Catholic, crazy about Jesus, so love Jesus. <laughs> You're sweet, Mama. I really like um, the idea of exploring what do other Christians do? How might it benefit my my own walk and my own devotional ways? And do you do you want to um, if you have a message that you hope people get from your book regarding the role of ecumenicalism or um, or how you want to answer that question? What do you hope readers understand after they read your book? My main hope is that they'll take the next step um, towards 
unity, if you will. Um, and, and unity can be a scary phrase. Uh, almost every conversation that I have online, someone will mention the quote, it's unity, not, or unity does not mean uniformity. So we're not trying to create a cookie cutter Christian here. We are trying to follow Christ. That's it. At the end of the day, I want more of Jesus. I said that probably a dozen times in my book. Thank goodness my editors didn't take it out. That's it. I just want more of Jesus. And if an individual has been a cradle Catholic, for example, and they don't even have a desire to visit a Protestant church, okay, Will you go on Amazon or your local bookstore, used bookstore, and pick up a Baptist hymnal? You know, I remember one time I was um, attending a church up in northern Michigan. We were on vacation, and it was a Catholic church. I was attending Mass, and the very last closing song was Amazing Grace. And I wept. <laughs> Because I was like, if there is a song, a hymn that is not Catholic, it is Amazing Grace. <laughs> you know, that that obviously comes from another tradition, but they are willing to embrace it. And, and that just in that moment was really beautiful to me. Um, maybe your step is, man, I've wanted to grab a friend and try an Ash Wednesday service. My church doesn't do Ash Wednesday service, but I've seen those ashes on people's foreheads. That's really interesting. I hope my book would give them the courage to do that. If you are a church leader, I would hope my book gives you pause on maybe not instantly condemning everything because it's Catholic in your mind. So like I said, just take the next step. Just be a little more open. Um, maybe for you, like for me, the floodgates go wide open, <laughs> you know, and you're like, I want to experience all of it. I had a book launch team for my book. It was um, several individuals. And I remember one of them telling me in our Zoom call, he goes, you know, your book kind of had this certain pace and you were telling stories and it was all, you know, kind of nostalgic at points. He goes, and then you reach the last chapter and all of a sudden it was like speed racer. <laughs> you know, I was, I was in that very last chapter. I'm like, and I want to attend a Quaker service and experience an mm -hmm. hour of silence. I want to put a mezuzah on my door. That's a, um, you know, a Jewish practice and all of these mm -hmm. different things. And he's like, wow, you know, he goes, it was good. It shows your excitement. And that's exactly how I feel. And Mm -hmm. Praise God for the readers that are going to read this and feel that way too, because I think that's a really good place to be. Yeah. I, I know when I first got into just reading, um, I mean, this is goes way back, but the Eastern Orthodox, you know, before the schism mm -hmm. there, that's when everybody was, you know, in the same group, right? That's an amazing bunch of writings and, uh, and they didn't and agree. I think, they did no, not nobody, agree. They <laughs> never agreed. But it's it's so interesting to to know that Christianity goes back that far. And we mm. tend to, as Protestants, think it goes back about 500 years. Yeah. And that's when it started. Yeah. And it really is interesting to see, well, how did they pray? Well, how did they uh, do communion? What were they what were they saying? And and really get a perspective of the richness and 
the influences of other cultures. Like there's a lot of Middle Eastern influence, of course, because that's where that's where the first church was from, of course. <laughs> um, and so we see how much has changed um, because Protestantism was born in Europe. Well, we it's very European flavored, but it's so interesting to like the Coptic Christians when we you introduced me to Phoebe and her um, Coptic Christian roots in Egypt. Yeah. And that's amazing Christianity there. So incredibly amazing. And uh, you know, the founded by the disciple Mark, mm -hmm. and uh, that's that's pretty. You know, that gets back a pretty good way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you then you really get a great sense. Jealous because you know you're <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I've, I'm so behind. I'm so behind on history and on um, spiritual practices, and yeah, it it's um, like I said, a, a very good place to be. Um, Social, you know, we we live in a time where the access that we have to be able to learn these things is incredible. Uh, you know, I can go down um, my Facebook feed, my Twitter feed, what have you, and instantly I have 12, 15, 20 different branches of Christianity represented. That's unheard yeah. of, unheard of before today. Right. I, and I love your questions. I think tell people where they can find you on Twitter. You're always doing and, and everywhere else, too. But you're always doing these great questions like how do you um, how do you do communion or how often do you do communion? You, you run these. Uh, they're not really real, like legit polls, but you wind up getting so many in the format that Twitter puts them in usually, but usually you ask these questions and you have like sometimes hundreds and hundreds of responses. Mm. And I find them so interesting to read through and I will often participate in them, but I, and, and it's, and it's true that most of the people stay perfectly well behaved <laughs> with occasional, like the occasional point oh five percent uh, the occasional yeah. person like we can't do that. But most people know your, your intentions are, you're curious. I you're not like, learner. it's not a, yeah, not a rope-a-dope, like, I can't wait to tell you how it really should be. But you, you want to see what is the breadth of experience here and how does it work for you? And it is really interesting to notice the differences. So tell people where they can find you. Yeah, well, thank you for that, first of all. Yeah, um, I actually started those questions on Facebook on my personal page and created a gosh, it's probably three years old now, I created a handbook that lists, you know, um, how many times have you been baptized? Uh, what were some traditional dishes offered at your church's potluck? I mean, it could be, I, my brain goes all over the place. One of the most fascinating questions was, what do you call potluck? Because apparently oh. some churches don't like to use the word luck. And so they'll call it a pot blessing, but then pot could oh. be an illegal drug. So then, oh, <laughs> I mean, it's dish. crazy. Yes. Hot dish. Hot dish is mm. common in some part and part of it's regional. So yeah, right. truly, truly fascinating questions. Um, on Twitter, I am at traces of faith. That's also my blog name, traces of faith.com Facebook and Instagram. I had to add blog at the end. So traces of faith blog. So a mm -hmm. few variations, but for the um, Twitter is where I spend a lot of my time these days. It's just where I found a home, I guess. I just found mm -hmm. a lot of spiritually curious people and a lot of experts mm -hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm amazed at some, you yeah. know, a lot of times if people will respond, I'm like, oh, that's a really thoughtful response. I'm curious what denomination they're from. I'm curious yeah. what their background is. And oftentimes mm-hmm. they'll have like their doctorate, you know, their MDiv. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, right. why are you even talking to me? Like I, I come <laughs> as a complete person in the pew who yeah. just wants to know as much as I can learn. Um, so yeah, but mm-hmm you know, uh, if you were to examine the success of those questions, I think that's a lot of why I don't, yeah. don't come as an expert. Yeah, you can really do a lot to leverage the the hive mind or whatever, if you will, of Twitter. You don't have to know all the answers, but you can find people who do, or you can collect the information from from that repository. And it is amazing. Do you have any final uh, words or nuggets you would like to share before we go? Go into these different opportunities looking for more of Jesus. It, we're never going to find all of him, um, not, not in this earth. And so I think there is such a worthwhile pursuit there to just experience as much of him as you can. As much as you can also lay down what you thought you knew about Catholicism and contemplative prayer, even quiet times, you know, sometimes it will flip and I will think, gosh, this Anglican could so benefit from our daily bread subscription or whatever. It goes both ways, Um, just opportunities to learn from one another. And I would just encourage your listeners to do that more and more. Thank you so much, Tracy, for being my guest. Appreciate it. I enjoyed it. (laughs) 